Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we can be together today. We are going to be looking at a lesson from the very end of the Bible, the 21st and 22nd chapters of Revelation. The lesson is titled, The New Jerusalem, and we are going to be looking at the vision that John has of the new heaven and the new earth that God has prepared for us. Before we begin the lesson, let's bow our heads for prayer. I want us to pray together the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. If you watch any cable TV, if you're familiar with cable TV, you are probably familiar with all of the DIY shows, the do-it-yourself shows, where they deal with home restorations. These are shows like Flip or Flop, Flip This House, things like that. But every episode, you see someone take an old house, many times one that's literally falling apart, and they remake it into a dream home. The old house is gutted. Sometimes it's almost completely removed. And then you see a new house arising from the wreckage. Well, in Revelation, John does this even one better. It's not just a house that's restored. John sees a whole new heaven and earth coming about, replacing what we see before us now. The text we'll be looking at is Revelations chapter 21 and 22. We'll be looking at the first four verses of each. But in this, we get one of the bookends of the Bible. Genesis and Revelation, the first book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, they kind of form a bookend of the whole Bible story, the story of God and his interactions with man. The, the Bible tells us the scope of God's plan for man from beginning to end. And we need to understand God's plan, his plan for salvation, it was the same from the very beginning. When we talk about the original creation in Genesis, when we talk about the new creation in Revelation, we need to understand both of these were in God's plan before the world was ever created. So, many times we kind of think the original creation story was what God intended. When that was messed up, he had to go with a plan B. But that's not the case. Both of these new creations were part of what God intended for man. Now, we want to begin by looking at the original creation. And in Genesis, we see God carving order out of chaos. We are told about the first six days of creation, where every day God does something new to further creation. And the outcome is, it was good. Genesis 1 reads, uh, chapter 1, verse 2 reads, In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In the Old Testament, 
The unpredictable sea was a common symbol of cosmic disorder. Psalm 104, verses 7 through 9 reads, But at your rebuke the waters fled, at the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains, they went down into the valleys, to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross, never again will they cover the earth. So, as uh, Justin Dillahay writes, the tossing sea becomes a symbol of evil, a dark, dangerous place that swallows up ships, that swarms with dangerous monsters, that churns up mire and beast. Now, what we see here on the second day of creation, God creates a vault. God creates the sky for a specific purpose, to separate the waters above from the waters below. In other words, God carves out a niche. He creates a pocket out of all of this chaos, creating a space in which he is going to form the heavens and the earth. And so we see God holding chaos at bay, God holding back the forces of the water, the forces of of destruction and, and chaos. What we see is God creating this creation, and at the end of each day, God sees that it is good. So this is our original creation, and man is finally placed in the garden as God's icon, that is, one who bears God's image. And he's given a specific purpose, to reflect God's image in the garden. So, Icon is a God-bearer. Genesis tells us, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then man was placed in the garden with a specific task, to rule and to reign over creation as God's representative, to be co-rulers with God, to be the mediator of God's presence in this world. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in numbers. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So man was given a task, a responsibility to carry out. To be a co-ruler with God, the problem was man set out to usurp God's role. And so we have the fall. We have man's sin and the curse that results. The result of the sin, the result of the curse, was God withdrew from part of this world. Creation is split into twin spheres of reality, into heaven and earth. Heaven is the area of this reality under God's control, the part where God reigns. His will is carried out perfectly. Jesus told us this when he taught his disciples to pray, and he said, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the earthly part of this creation, the reality we inhabit, that's a far different story. The earthly reality is controlled, as Paul describes it, by the powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, by the prince of the power of the air. And as a result, death reigns. Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. This was physical death. Genesis 3, 19, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But 
even more important was spiritual death. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And later, Paul reminds Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.6, the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So we see Adam and Eve as cursed. The serpent is cursed, and creation itself is cursed. We read, Cursed is the ground because of you. And later, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 how all of creation reflects the curse of sin. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We can see the curse of this physical, physical creation all around us. We know very well that we inhabit a world of suffering and pain. Several years ago, we had the tsunami uh, right after Christmas that killed hundreds of thousands of people. We saw just in the last couple of months an earthquake that struck Haiti. We've been living through a global pandemic. So far, around four and a half million people have died around the world, and it shows no signs of stopping. Closer to home, just last week, we saw floodwaters that ripped babies from the arms of their fathers. So we know this physical world is a world of pain. We have to ask ourselves, why? Why did God subject creation itself to corruption and decay? The creation hadn't sinned. The creation itself was innocent. It was man who had sinned. But I like the explanation that John Piper gives us. What he tells us is that God has put the natural world under a curse so that the physical horror we see around us becomes a visible picture, a reminder of just how horrible sin is. Piper writes, Natural evil is a signpost to the unspeakable wickedness of moral evil. The disorder of the moral and spiritual world is so great, but we don't feel it. We are blinded to the exceeding wickedness of sin. And so, in His mercy, God cursed the physical creation through no faults of its own, but to remind us of the condition that we find ourselves in. In His mercy, God lets us inhabit a ruined physical world to remind us of the truly evil results of sin not just what it's done to our natural world, but what it does to us, how completely sin corrupts and perverts every single part of us. Look at how Paul describes his sinful self from Romans chapter 7. He writes, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me.
Paul was one who thoroughly recognized the utter corruption of the sinful nature. He could see what the sinful nature did even to God's holy law. God had given us the law as a blueprint of what's holy and righteous and good. It's an instruction book that teaches, teaches us how to avoid sin. Instead, though, sin perverted the law. We take the law, and instead of using it to avoid evil, we actually use the law as an instruction book on how to sin. So the law ends up not steering us away from God, but it ends up awakening a desire for sin within us. When we're told not to do something because it's evil, we immediately crave a desire to do it. And this leaves us crying out with Paul, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Now, the good news is, from Revelation, the chapters 21 and 22, we are shown a new heaven and a new earth. The Genesis story with the fall is only the beginning. It's not the end. In our text today from Revelation, we see a new heaven and a new earth, the restoration of all that was ruined by sin. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. John is giving us his vision, this new world that is to come. And he begins by stating something that seems very puzzling to us. John writes, And there was no longer any sea. We look at this and it seems out of place. Why would John want us to know this? What's so important about there not being a sea? Well, we have to go back to what we talked about earlier, to how the Jewish people viewed the sea. They saw it as a symbol of all that was chaotic and demonic and evil and disruptive. In the original creation, we saw God separating the waters, stretching out the firmament of the sky to carve out a space for His good creation, holding back the forces of chaos and disruption and evil. But in John's vision of this new heaven and earth, it's not that the sea is divided. The sea is completely gone. God is no longer holding back the forces of chaos. Chaos, destruction, evil itself has been van banished. It's no longer there. It's gone. And so John wants us to understand this about the new creation. This world is going to be far different. John then presents us with another important aspect of this new heaven and earth. He writes, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In this new heaven and earth, life reigns. Death itself is conquered. We live in a society, in a culture, that does everything it can to deny the reality of death. We almost make a fetish out of appearing youthful. Entire sections of our economy are dedicated to making us look and feel younger than we are. No one can afford to look old, to seem as if they're old. Kendra Hess writes, In general, 
We do not like to think about, talk about, or acknowledge death as an inevitable reality. So, think of what it means for John when he writes that death itself will be banished. Death is no longer the evil. Instead, as John Piper tells us, death has become a doorway to paradise. The removal of physical death is a good thing. All of us have suffered the loss of a loved one. You know, we've had someone taken from us, and we mourn for them. We've experienced the gaping hole in our lives that this leaves behind. And to think that there will be no more separation by death, that is a tremendous blessing. But even more important than the banishment of physical death is the removal of spiritual death. In the original garden, once Adam and Eve had sinned, they were banished from the garden so that they could not eat of the tree of life and live forever. And most of the time, we think of this banishment as an additional punishment that God puts upon them. In reality, though, this was not punishment. This was God's mercy at work. If we could enjoy eternal life while still in our sins, It would be a curse instead of a blessing. Look at how much evil we can get up to in just a matter of 70 or 80 years. And then think about the horrible creatures we could become if we lived on, corrupted by sin for hundreds of years. So while physical life is nice, the spiritual life is what makes all of the difference. Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. With this new life, the curse on man is finally lifted. John tells us the old order is passed away. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It's hard for us to imagine an existence without any of these. They become such a part of our daily lives that they more or less blend into the background. We don't realize what life could be like without them. But death is conquered. The old order passes away. We have the waters of the river of life, the tree of life. All of these are incredible blessings, but they in themselves are not what make heaven truly heavenly. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. We see several things here. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in this new heaven and earth. God's name will be written on our foreheads. There will be no more night there. There will be no need for lamps or for a sun because we will be in the light of God's presence himself. Johnny Erickson Tata uh, is a well-known Christian uh, speaker and writer, and she is a quadriplegic. She's paralyzed from the neck down. And she's been that way now for over 50 years. And so she can do nothing for herself. 
multiple times a day. She has to be taken out of her wheelchair. She has to have her body closely examined. She has to have her clothing adjusted, her braces adjusted, because often something is pinching or bruising her body. And this is creating physical stress. Her blood pressure will skyrocket. Her breathing will become shallow. It's something that has to be dealt with. And this happens multiple times a day, a routine that quickly becomes tiresome. And yet, this is the life she's lived day in, day out, for decades. She is interesting because she writes about heaven in a new way. She writes that she does look forward to a resurrected body, to being part of God's new heaven and earth. But it's for different reasons than we might think. Johnny writes, I do look forward to being whole, to having a body that will never know pain. But to be honest, what I really want is a new heart that doesn't want to give up or quit. Some don't quite believe me. They think I want Jesus to come back so I can jump out of my wheelchair and walk again. Although at one time that was true, decades of leaning on Jesus in my suffering have driven my longings for heaven deeper. A glorified body will be nice, but I want a pure heart. I want to be holy. And I, I think what Johnny is expressing here is a desire to be with God, to be holy so that we can be in the presence of a holy God. We have a tendency to make heaven a place that really isn't about God. It's about us. Mitch Album wrote a best-selling novel called The Five People You Meet in Heaven. And the novel deals with a man who, who feels lonely as if he's unimportant, and he dies. He goes to heaven, and in heaven, he meets five people who show him the importance of his life. And so, heaven becomes a place where our relationships with others becomes most important. As Randy Alcorn writes, this is a pseudo-heaven, a heaven where man is the cosmic center and God plays a supporting role. Too often, this is our concept of heaven. It becomes about us, walking on streets of gold, meeting all of our loved ones who have died, achieving all of these great ambitions. But all of these are secondary. It's been written, wherever God is, there is heaven. It's the presence of God. That's what makes heaven, heaven. So the greatest feature of these, this new heaven and new earth, it's not the absence of death. It's not the new order that means no more mourning or pain or crying. The greatest feature is the presence of God among his people. Psalm 36, verses 8 and 9. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life. God's greatest gift to us now, and always will be, nothing less than himself. Randy Alcorn writes, We may imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is really what we long for. His presence brings satisfaction. His absence brings thirst and longing. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. The book of Revelation comes to a close with an amazing offer from God himself. A call is made to those who are thirsty to partake of the waters of life and to never thirst again. 
Revelation 22:17. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who is thirsty come. Let him who desires take the water of life without price. While Jesus was on the earth, he told the woman at the well, If you drink of the water I give you, you will never thirst again. She didn't quite believe him, and it's hard for us to believe Jesus as well. It seems too good to believe. I really think many Christians don't take the solace, the comfort, the hope in heaven that they should, because secretly we, we can't really imagine being satisfied with something forever and ever. We think that eventually even heaven will get boring. As humans, we are created with what's called sensory adaptation. It's the way our physical body and brain work when we are exposed to any kind of stimulus for an extended period of time, to a smell, to a taste, to a sound. We lose our ability to sense it. For example, people who smoke, they soon get used to the smell of cigarette smoke, and they no longer smell it. But to someone who doesn't smoke, the smell is immediate and strong. In the same way, it's not just physical stimulus, but our emotions, including pleasure, these are very similar. There's a term called hedonic adaptation. What it means is when we enjoy something, at first it's very pleasurable, but over time, the pleasure fades. Over time, we get used to it and it becomes the new normal. It stops being as pleasurable as it once was. So, psychological studies have shown we lose the ability to experience pleasure without the counterbalance of pain. We actually, in our physical lives, need suffering to let us feel pleasure. And so it's often hard to believe we could have a world where everything is pleasure and there is no pain. Eventually, we think it must become tiring, and we secretly fear this will be the case in heaven. But we misunderstand what it means for God to be infinite. Uh, As it's, it's been written, He is the only being in the universe of whom it can never be said, that's all there is, there isn't any more. This means that what can be seen, known, and experienced of God is likewise without limit. And if our sight, knowledge, and experience never cease, so too it must be with our enjoyment of all that He is and all that He does. Now, in this new order of things, we delight in God and never lose our capacity to enjoy. We get caught up in a feedback loop. The more we enjoy God, the more we find to enjoy. It's a loop that takes us higher and higher with ever-increasing joy. Now, we've experienced a similar type of feedback, a loop, but it's actually in the opposite direction. This is what can occur, for example, with some types of itching. There are times when we itch and we scratch, and instead of getting relief, we simply begin to itch more. So we itch, we scratch, we itch more, we scratch more, we itch more, etc. Well, this is similar, but it's in a positive direction. Because God is infinite, as we enjoy God, we develop the capacity 
to enjoy Him more and more and more. Our delight in God grows uh, forever and ever. As Sam Storms writes, With each revelation of yet one more facet of His immeasurably complex being comes more joy, more fascination, more excitement, more love, more worship. We will constantly be more amazed with God, more in love with God, and thus ever more relishing His presence in our relationship with Him. In 1952, Florence Chadwick tried to swim from Catalina Island to the coast of California. For 15 hours, she endured choppy waters, possible shark attacks, and even extreme fatigue. Then a thick fog set in, and she was eventually forced to give up. Two months later, she tried it again. This time, it was foggy again, but this time she made it. And when they asked her what made a difference between the first unsuccessful attempt and the second time, she said, The first time, all I could see was the fog. The second time, I kept a mental image of that shoreline in my mind while I swam. What we see here is that her comments give us an image of how heaven should function in our lives. As we follow Jesus, we don't want to get lost in the fog. To persevere through the fog, through the fatigue, through all of the distractions of this life, we need a mental image of the eternal shoreline of heaven, of what is awaiting for us, of all that will be there, but especially of God himself. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this promise that's been given to us of a new heaven and a new earth. To know, Lord, that you have promised this and you will never go back on your word. To know that's where we're headed and what will eventually, Lord, uh, be, be our lot that you're going to provide for us. Help us to give you the praise, to give you the glory, and to keep this hope steadfastly in front of us, Lord, as we travel through this next week and this next year with whatever's going to happen here on earth. But knowing we can depend upon you, for you are bringing us into your presence. We give you praise in your name. Amen.